Hello, welcome to Wine With Us. Today I'm with Dylan Sheeman, who's in here for the second time. Last time he was with uh, Juho Zvetsalainen. How you doing, sir? Good, how are you? It's great to be back. Yeah, good. I just came back from an eight-mile cycle in Vienna, so um, and I've just been showered up, had some food, so feeling quite relaxed. Nice, nice. Yeah, we're... Um... I'm in Phoenix, and as everyone knows, this is the coronavirus shutdown time. So I've been doing a lot of yoga. Uh, I've been live streaming my yoga sequences on YouTube, actually, just to stay sane. And I feel like if I don't live stream it, then I find an excuse not to do it. So it's like this commitment to like do yoga every day. And it, so it's you're good. live streaming you you doing yoga, or you're following an instructor? Me actually doing it because I actually. Um, so while I'm a developer, my side hobby is yoga, and I actually teach yoga at a local gym here, and right. um, so it just kind of keeps me going. Yeah. Is, it, is it power yoga you do, or or just like cold room yoga, I, hot power yoga? I do a mix of what you would describe as like a vinyasa flow, uh, like a fairly deliberate vinyasa flow sequence, but then I'll also sometimes do something more restorative or something more gentle. Like once in a while, my mom will take the class, so I try to make sure there's stuff that's approachable for her and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've not been to, uh, well, I usually go to Pilates uh, sometimes, but mm-hmm. I, I, find it kind of, I find it kind of boring sometimes. I just, I'd rather just put in some stretches in between, you know, other workouts. I, I, my classes can be pretty aggressive. So there's not much time to be bored. <laughs> yeah. But I find that with the whole, um, social distancing and staying at home that I actually appreciate the slower classes a bit more now. So before it would be kind of like, well, all right, maybe this is good for me. And now I'm like, wow, I just really need this hour to do nothing and just chill out sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So Dylan has two professional careers in a sense. He runs this consultancy, sort of front um, web development consultancy. And he also runs these conferences that are, Fantastic! I absolutely love. This. It's called they're called Half Stack. So I guess a lot of yes. things are uh, in the middle of the cyclone right now for you guys, because you've done a lot of conferences. Yeah. yeah, this year we were supposed to do seven in-person conferences, and um, last year we had done three. So it was really kind of growing and doing really well. That it's different than most conferences, and that it's um, sort of a creative celebration more than a traditional conference so people show off like their christmas jumper with led lights that you know uses speech recognition software to detect what christmas carol is playing and changes the lights or um you know ramon who did like his dance mat js thing where he you know created a dance mat to do ddr dance dance revolution style games um so you get like really creative influx of different ideas and stuff. And so the conferences have a really low key, fun, relaxed vibe, which is different than most events. And historically people were like, well, would you ever do one online? And I'm like, no, why would we do that? Like it's about getting together and having good food and seeing the demos in real life. And plus who wants to sit through a conference online all day, right? Because why would you do that? Everyone's trying to hype it up. Like it's some great thing, (laughs) you know, virtual conferences. I just honestly, personally, I couldn't care less about virtual. I would rather go for a cycle or play chess or something than sit in front of another yeah. meeting. <laughs> yeah. So what I've done is I've realized, well, okay, like there's something we could actually do special in, online if we want to. Um, and it only works because everyone's at home, right? If everyone was at work and doing their stuff, there's no way you'd want to attend a virtual conference. But what we're going to do is sort of like a, So back in the 80s, there was this um, performance. It was like a music concert performance worldwide. And it was in person, but it was also broadcast to the whole world live. And it was called Live Aid. And it raised tons of money for AIDS and HIV research at the time. And they had concerts in several different venues. They had like Wembley Stadium in London, and they had somewhere in LA, and I think they had somewhere in New York. I mean, and they just had huge bands throughout the world playing at a time convenient for them. So the idea was, well, you know, if we do something that's affordable and we have speakers throughout the world, let's just do like a really long day where people can pop in for an hour or two at a time, watch a creative talk, have some fun, chat with some people that are in their rough time zone, but not feel like they have to sit through, you know, a 12 hour straight 
deep technical conference, but instead like just get something fun and inspiring and engaging, but keep it cheap enough that if someone's like, yeah, I can only attend for an hour, it's still worth it. Um, but you know, like something where if you really wanted to spend 18 hours in front of your screen, you could, but I hope you don't other than me. So it, it's like trying to figure out, well, if no one can leave home and we want to do something creative together and we have all these people doing interesting things and we want to showcase that, what can we do to make it fun and engaging? So like, we're going to have like music performances and comedy acts and like, but all tech and JavaScript and web related. So it will be it's almost more like an, a talent show style vibe or an improv night or, you know, something that's just really focused on the creative aspect of things, um, but related to this, you know, web ecosystem that we live in. I'm sure it'll be great because the, uh, whatever you do, it seems to be fantastic. Cause when we went to that, well, normally when I go to conferences, I hardly ever go to the content meetings. I'll just go and around the stalls and meet people and network but the the half stack conference was in Vienna, where the, the food was great, the coffee was great, the the people were great, and the talks were actually very good as well. So, if there's one guy that can pull it off online, it's Dylan. Oh, you're too kind. But really, I, you know, it was about six years ago, and I think I might have told you this before. I, I I went. I've been to a lot of conferences. I've spoken to a lot of conferences, and some of them are really nice, and some of them are not so nice. But I really said, I'm tired of just, I, I don't have the patience to sit through talks all day, even in real life. Yeah. So what can I do to make an, an event that's like going to be engaging the whole time, but I don't feel like I'm missing out if I need a break. You know, if I, ha- I want to go in the hallway and have a coffee, I'm not missing that one session I needed to see. Um, but, you know, what can I do to keep my interest and keep it fun and keep it light? And it's interesting, like before this whole coronavirus thing, people would kind of give you attitude if you were taking a call from home and your kid would come in the room or, you know, the vacuum cleaner would go on in the background or the dog would bark, right? It was like everyone expected everyone to be robotically perfect when they were on a conference call. And now everyone's like, oh, your dog's so funny or your kid's hilarious or cute. And it's like, yeah, because we're humans. We're not robots, right? And Halfstack has always, I've always kind of taken this approach of like, it's a great conference, but it's not, too polished it doesn't have to be perfect we can laugh at ourselves we're okay if like there's a cable running down off the side from the stage because you know what like that's the that's where we needed a cable to run and it doesn't look perfect but we don't care like we want to give a good experience yeah. not worry about it being aesthetically perfect all the time you yeah know? i remember we had those seven big tables and we had all the uh, pretzels laid along when we say pretzels <laughs> we're not talking about those things you buy in, like, buying a packet of crisps of plastic we're talking about it's the size of a pizza almost, like a small pizza, and it's got like oh, all yeah. sorts of stuff in there. But uh, they were they were like the best fight. So I mean, the funny thing about Half Stack Vienna is we couldn't find a caterer. Um, so we had a conference in early, in like mid September, and no one was responsive to us all summer long. And our venue was like, "Sorry, we don't have any catering available that day." And we're like, "Oh, that's interesting." And so we got quotes from like really fancy catering companies that wanted. Like 200 euros a person, and our, our tickets were like 100 euros a person on average, right? So it wasn't going to work. It's like work. a wedding on steroids there. Yeah. Double and the price like, of you know, They wanted like your your cutlery and your matching serviettes. And like, you know, we're like, people just want to eat and have some beers and have some coffee and some water and whatever, right? So yeah. we just started finding places that would deliver. And we found this wonderful place that made these big pretzel sandwiches. And they're, they're like, you know, half a meter wide, right? And uh, like, and just filled with like sandwich stuff, and it was impressive. And the the total cost to cater that was like nothing. I mean, it was so affordable for what it was. Yeah, and it was like, and it was the best conference food because it was. It was really tasty. You know, yeah, and it was regionally interesting, right? Because like, and then dinner we had a bunch of pizzas and schnitzel, and again, it was like it was just good, decent food and and not overpriced, and so. It's, it's kind of interesting. What I always look for for half stack is I don't want to be giving all of my money to things that don't actually make the experience better. So conferences are one of the few things that become more expensive the more people you have. Like they don't scale. Oh, they, do. they don't scale. They actually become more expensive wow. because you're limited on your venues, right? Like you're yeah. stuck with your big convention centers and hotels that are very – like JSConf, which is a beautiful event, I'm sure they probably spend – 
more than a hundred dollars per person per meal, you know, just in the cost of having a decent, decent food at a hotel or conference center. And so I look for places that charge you what you would pay if you went to your local restaurant and, and had good food because that's fair. That's reasonable. Right. And, um, similarly, like one reason we've been able to sort of survive this whole pandemic and canceling or postponing of events is I won't sign with a venue that is inflexible and I won't give a big deposit up front because I don't think that's fair for us as this like company that's just trying to create this really fair, um, reasonably priced thing to say, you know what, we're going to give you 10,000 euros up front to reserve space for a day, especially now. So we're looking really smart because we have like no long-term commitments other Bro, than we've said. I'm so happy. I was worried I'm going to yeah. I was going to phone you and be like living in a cardboard box or something like that. Because like <laughs> if you're running all these events and and most people probably won't have insurance for something like this, and um, that's that's smart, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, like I saw, Oktoberfest is already postponed till next year, um, and the reason isn't that they know, they don't know if they'll be able to have it then or not. But they have to decide now to be able to get out of the cost of having it, because otherwise they would lose millions of euros to, to not have an event. Yeah, and, and, and I don't know anyone is, unless you're a big company running events all the time, you're probably not going to have to pay the insurance. So why should I pay this insurance? But unless you have like a team yeah. that's risk management and know how to, to want to insure this kind of stuff, then. Uh, yeah, I went to a conference in Tokyo in February that got canceled they like I was leaving on a Monday and the conference was supposed to be on Saturday or no, I was leaving on Tuesday and it got canceled on Monday. But I mean, my tickets were already booked for Tokyo. I was taking my son for like a little mini holiday. And then I was supposed to speak at this conference. Um, it was type, the TypeScript conference in Japan for the first time. And they ha actually had the insurance because in Japan, like insurance apparently is reasonable. And so they booked the insurance and they had to cancel it because they needed to get the money back because so many people were canceling because they were concerned about coronavirus already. Yeah. Um, so they had no choice but to cancel because they were going to lose a ton of money if they didn't cancel the whole event, which is a shame. So um, I'm lucky that I just have been very careful about how, like we keep these events in person to like two to 300 people at most because we don't want to deal with the consequences of having to, negotiate with a very expensive venue that's inflexible we just kind of want to keep it fun and community driven mm -hmm. yeah so you seen any hopeful signs of a, of a bounce back or future events coming back online you know i guess you only know as much as the president says <laughs> well, I'm not drinking bleach or injecting UV radiation, but um, the uh, um, what I'm what I've done is that basically I've got alternative dates, you know, further out in the future. Um, and so, like, we had events planned in April and May, and we postponed those to October and December. But now that means I have an event scheduled every month from the, for the rest of the year. So there's eventually there's a knock on effect. So if we have to keep canceling, we'll just keep pushing them back and pushing them back until we can have them again. And we're very flexible with attendees. So if the new date doesn't work for them, they get a refund. If the new date works for them, great. They just keep their ticket. Um, and that allows us to be fair. So again, like you can buy a ticket early for any half stack event in person. And if you can't make it, you can either transfer to someone else or get a full refund. Uh, up to seven days in advance of the conference. So, you know, we don't want people to feel like they're at risk and then not be able to attend. And we, you know, run away with the money and tell them we, we can't afford it. So we just keep the money in the bank and can do that. Luckily, all of our sponsors have been kind enough to say, we're committed just as soon as we can have the event, let's do it and don't worry about it. And that's really been awesome. So wow, even big surprising. enterprises, yeah, like even like Salesforce is a big sponsor of ours this year. And, like, yep, just keep us on the list for the next time you have these events and we'll be there. And so we're pretty excited a, about that. That's the importance of having good personal relationships with these different companies because you must have personal relationships with people and make those decisions and that's 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 great. You're not an anonymous, you know, CEO yeah. behind a desk somewhere, you're out there. So let me just close the yeah, windows for those trains. <laughs> oh sure, no worries. <laughs> Yeah, I would say that, um, well, what's interesting is, 
you know, I've, I've been on the other side sponsoring conferences before. And a lot of times you like pay your money, you get your booth and you're pretty much on your own to raise awareness for yourself. Um, we take a different approach. We don't have booths because we want our sponsors to be part of the event. So we want people to, to send their engineers or the people that are passionate about the web, not, you know, they're, they're like marketing people. I mean, they can send their marketing people if they want. They think that's interesting, but, um, we don't want people, you know, sort of segregated at the booths and not part of the conference. And the, the impact of that is we actually charge a lot less than most conferences charge for our sponsors because we're like, well, we're not giving you the things you might normally want, which is a booth and a list of everyone's name and a way to track everyone. Instead, what we're giving you is the opportunity to like sponsor an amazing event and be part of the fabric of that event. So what we can say is, Hey, you know, Salesforce, you sponsored lunch. And then when it's lunchtime, we can say, Hey everyone, we had an amazing lunch because Salesforce contributed to this event. And people are going to remember that more than like, they were at booth number 1,748. I got a, I got a pen, you know, and like, so we, we, so we really do engage our sponsors individually and we're pretty aggressive. Like a lot of companies do sponsor an event and they don't do much. And we're like, Hey, if you give us this, we can do this for you. If you give us this, we can do this for you. So the sponsors become part of what makes the event interesting rather than like this sleazy thing you try to avoid the whole day. So I like that. Um, so the sponsors, the, the attendees are charged the same as the normal non, non-sponsored attendees? How does it work? No, I mean, the sponsors, they get a, they get a package and it sort of includes different things. So like the, the top sponsor package gets, you know, they get recognition for the biggest event. And then like during the lunch break, we cycle a video with the different sponsors and, and things like that. So they are paying a premium for this. But like a typical conference, if you were to say, hey, we want to sponsor the dinner party, you would pay a bunch of money for that right. And then you would also cover the full cost of the dinner party. So, you know, you might spend like $50,000 to sponsor dinner at a, a 200 person conference. And at Half Stack, it's like, hey, you know, it's like 3,000 euros to be on the top, you know, top level sponsor. And we don't charge you extra for the thing. It's just that's what you pay and you get all this stuff. And we, and we can do that because we're not overpaying for food and we're not overpaying for all these things. And we're able to like really keep the costs under control. So we can give our sponsors a really good value. Yeah. So they don't ask for all this sleazy things because they're like, you know, this is just kind of a good event. We want to be associated with it. We want people to remember us. We want to talk with them. But it's less about like, did I collect a thousand contact details? Well, no, because that's not really doing much for you anyway. So you know? do you, does that include like people from Salesforce if they want to come or is it normally just they want a remote mention kind of deal? Um, they'll usually send their engineers or maybe, you know, someone else that wants to attend. They will yeah. send people, but then they'll be part of the conference. And, you know, they're not there harassing you. They're there as part of the event because they want to be there because it's a cool event yeah. rather than like, oh, I got to go man this booth at another soulless conference. And I don't yeah. actually get to attend any of the conference because I'm stuck at the booth all day. And, yeah. you know, so we, so not only did we think about what would make the conference good for the attendees and the speakers, but also what would make it an enjoyable day for the sponsors themselves. So the sponsors that come, they're like, this is a great event. I want to sponsor next year because I actually enjoyed my day and I met people, and I raised brand awareness and all yeah. those things. So it's just a more authentic experience, you know. Yeah, Vienna's great because you've got a really high concentration of expert developers that are, you know, very well known on GitHub. Yeah. You know, for example, yeah, Max Stoiber's here, and Yoho, and Nick Graf, and yeah. on and on. Yeah, no, I loved, I mean, I've only been to Vienna three times now, but I've had an amazing time when I've been there. And um, I also went to... Um, Script Conf last year, I spoke in Leeds, which was really nice. And that's a beautiful city too. And um, it's just, it's really nice. I enjoy my time there. Yeah. So how's uh, the um, Dojo framework uh, version 2 coming along? So we're about to release, yeah, we're about to release version 7. Um, oh. Probably, well, I mean, so like 1.0 to 2.0 was like, oh, 11 years and then we were planning 2.0 for like seven years right and now we're on very proper semantic versioning so every like three to nine months we're doing another major release so um modern dojo is, is sort of like a batteries included typescript first reactive framework right so it includes sort of all the pieces you need to build most modern web apps from 
you know, a, a JSX or TSX based component system using virtual DOM diffing to built in routing to state management through stores. But then it also has a number of nice things like a component level based um, sort of build time rendering system. So in some ways it's similar to Next.js in, in its scope, but it's um, it's very streamlined and nice and easy to work with. And um, yeah, we just keep working on it and keep getting more users and shipping good products with it. And I, what's beautiful is like I'm rewriting the half stack website using Dojo, which is interesting because it's it's an older site that was written like back in the days when jQuery was totally normal and um, you know Dojo Toolkit was kind of overkill for it at the time and it's kind of slow and I'm using like the whole build time rendering thing and it gets like you know the it's not released yet but it gets all A's on every performance metric ever because it's like super lean and fast and simple and nice and. So it's just kind of even for a simple website, you can use it and um, create something beautiful. Um, so it's it's pretty cool, and it's very. I mean, we've used it for products. Daimler is a big user of it. They use it for all of their sort of car manufacturing, hmm. processing stuff. Daimler, the parent company of Mercedes Benz. Oh really? So they use it. They use it to build cars, basically. And oh, really? um, yeah, and then it's um, used. Uh, there are a lot of public safety applications in the U.S. that use it, sort of like um, emergency response systems and other things like that. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really powerful. It's cool. Sounds a bit it's, like Ember, the way you have sort of everything's opinionated, opinionated but it sounds, sounds powerful. But it's more, like, it's more flexible in that and the idea is we wanted to build a framework that doesn't lock you into an opinion, but that gives you a good default choice. Right, um, But if you want to override it or change it and you know how to do that, it's perfectly allowable. Whereas Ember has historically really tried to say, no, do it our way, please. And, um, so, you know, I, I do think it's more similar to something like Next.js in terms of it providing Next.js is a framework on top of react. Right. And it kind of, it, it's similar in, in some ways though. So, we didn't know about Next.js, and Next.js didn't know about us when we were working on Dojo, but they have evolved in some similar paths in terms of features and scope and approach. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, dojo.io, so that's D-O-J for jar, O.io. Uh, in Scottish, yeah. when I say J and G, I don't know, I can never tell which one I'm saying, so I'll just <laughs> spell it out, you know. Oh, you've got a playground on the site as well, I see. Oh yeah, yeah. We use um, what's it called? Uh, Code Sandbox is really nice. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's very powerful and cool. So, and how, then, much, um, how much does it share in common with something like RxJS? People are familiar with that. What I would say is, RxJS is often needed to take a framework that's not reactive and make it reactive. Right. If that makes sense. So yeah. it's very popular with Angular users because Angular's APIs by default did not sort of assume a reactive nature. You, you don't really need RxJS very much with Dojo, I would say, because Dojo's APIs are just reactive by default where they should be, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we early in the days of Dojo 2, we actually were using RxJS and um, then we were using the observable pattern that was like the shim. And then we found that like if we just write our APIs in a nice modern reactive way, it just kind of works that way and you don't really need that infrastructure as much. Mm -hmm. Like similarly, like our um, we have this dojo store API that's started out kind of similar to Redux, but it's more aligned with like kind of a clear separation between commands, processes, and transactions, kind of like what you might expect to evolve from something like um, like an OT-based system, operational transforms. I mean, that's I'm sort of oversimplifying, but the point is like, it's very clear like where you put your logic and where you put your, you know, transformations and things like that compared to something like Redux. And the result is you're not like reducing everything everywhere. Like when something needs to get reduced, it just gets reduced. Like it, it just kind of does it for you. I hate writing makes... reducers and connected to all those yeah. things. I just make yeah, myself like, tired. Yeah, we hate boilerplate. So anywhere where we're like, wow, this is a lot of boilerplate, we find a way to get rid of it and streamline it and simplify it. 
So I'm on the uh, dojo.io forward slash learn forward slash routing forward slash introduction. And um, I'm looking at the the routes.ts. That makes sense. Export default array, path home, outlet home. Um, Yeah. What's cool about... Yeah, what's cool about the built-in Dojo routing system is a few things. By default, the way Dojo works is you define your default route and your other routes, and whatever is needed for your default route ends up in your default bundle, and everything else ends up in a separate bundle that can get loaded later. And then similarly, we can do a build time rendering based on your routing to sort of optimize. We can just optimize very aggressively. So we use Webpack underneath the covers, but as a user, you don't really care because we could switch to something else and the APIs would be the same. Um, The idea is like, if you define your application clearly following our guidelines, we will optimize it using all of the sort of different ways of optimizing that you would normally need to do manually. Like if you want a PWA, you get the manifest and all of that by default. Um, So like all Dojo apps are PWAs by default. And so the idea is to just like, take all those modern best practices you should be following and just make them the default behavior so that you get a good performing app, you know, just by following the lead. So what's the sort of RAM footprint and uh, browser size downloads compared to things like React and Angular, even Svelte? It's considerably smaller. It's very comparable to Svelte in terms of download size. Really? Um, So like our, yeah, our, our default bundle is... Um, it's under 10k, I think. Um, if you do like the real world application, which is an attempt to like create, uh, it's sort of like a more advanced to do MVC. It's around 20k gzipped, I think, which That's is great. about one tenth the size of the default React app. But there's the articles I've seen comparing us is like we're just slightly bigger than Svelte sometimes, but just slightly bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you actually, what's interesting, so the Dojo website you're looking at right now was authored in Dojo. So what you'll realize is the only JavaScript on that site, because it's static, uh, and the output is actually like for analytics and for running examples. But your default bundle doesn't really include any JavaScript at all. So it's, it's using markdown files and TypeScript to generate a static HTML and CSS site that you can use that's super fast. So I noticed you have something called uh, link with a capital L. Is it possible mm-hmm. to just use normal anchor tags, if you like, and the framework would figure Absolutely. out? Absolutely. Yeah, you can use normal anchor tags. What the link tag allows you to do is hook that into your routing system automatically. So uh, effectively, what you use the link tag for is to describe that you want to transition to a different uh, route. But the generated output is just a link tag. It's just an A tag. Um, it's just a, it's a, it's basically it reduces some of the boilerplate you would need to write if you wanted to do a more advanced routing configuration for a particular link. So how did you use JSX to hook into your, your framework? So all of our components can be authored as sort of, there's sort of two styles you can write, um, components or we call them widgets just for historical reasons. But, um, Basically, they can either be function-based or they can be class-based. Function-based are what we generally prefer today. Um, but before like TypeScript 2.6, they were pretty difficult to describe. Um, so it just took some time for us to get there. And um, what you'll notice is that like when you use a functional-based widget, you can either write it using hyperscript syntax, but the more flexible version is effectively JSX, that we call TSX because that's the TypeScript safe version of JSX. Um, but basically all your components will be written as, uh, you know, like you would write them in React in the same sort of syntax. I need to get proper headphones because they keep falling at my ears. So it's going to sound great <laughs> on the podcast, isn't it? <laughs> hey, it's, it's coronavirus time. You don't have to be perfect. It's okay. <laughs> Man, the amount, the amount of quality frameworks that are out, I wish I had these things back in the day, you know. I wouldn't have had to spend four years doing Flash and Cold Fusion. That's why I started Dojo in 2004, because I didn't want to work on Flash. Oh, <laughs> Actually, back in the early days of Dojo, I mean, this was crafty, but there were things you could only do in Flash. So we built a Flash Bridge API to 
to be able to do like sound and other things from JavaScript. So we never have to write Flash ourselves. Um, and basically just do a bridge between a JavaScript app and a Flash player effectively. And, um, you know, we could do vector graphics. You could do it with, back in the day, you could do it with SVG or VML or Canvas or Silverlight or Flash because we were just trying to like create stuff that worked at a time when the web was horribly broken. And so there's a lot of interesting things we did back then that are luckily no longer needed. But yeah, that's it's been a long curve to get there. So I, mean, I started working on Dojo in 2004, so 16 years ago. Um, and a lot has changed, but then there are some things where you're like, wow, that problem still hasn't changed or been solved. Like managing, like um, there are a lot of applications in different industries where you use multiple big screens, right? And you want to sort of say, hey, this part of my application shows up on screen two and this part of my application shows up on screen three. And I want to kind of, like you might imagine like a, a financial trading system or an emergency response system is often across multiple screens. And the web still really hasn't defined APIs that are built in that manage like multiple screen windows and things like that, where you're like, wow, that that's something 16 years ago I thought would have been solved by now, but just hasn't been interesting in part because it doesn't really translate well to mobile. So um, most APIs now think mobile first and then figure out how to do them for desktop web and stuff. But yeah, it's, it's interesting how some things have changed drastically and other things are completely unchanged in that time. Yes. So what was the, what was the name of the site that uh, the the car building thing? So it's well, it's like a it's their own internal application for oh, managing okay. their stuff, right? So most interesting software is not actually public facing internet stuff. It's the software you use like for your job to like build stuff or manage stuff or you know um, create things. So. You know, like, I mean, to me, like interesting software that's hard to build is things like Figma for like designing products or, um, you know, just sy systems you might spend all day in if you have a very specialized job and being able to do those on the web is pretty awesome, which wasn't always the case. So, so if companies are using Dojo, they must have also have some pretty smart developers and they've thought a lot about the other frameworks, React, uh, Angular, Vue, mm -hmm. what sort of things are making them choose Dojo? making huge, huge decisions? I mean, I think it's, so what's interesting is like back in the day, Dojo One was considered like the slower, like the thing that did it first, but it was slower, right? And so what we kind of did is we waited till use in Dojo dropped off enough that we could just burn it all down and start over again. Mm -hmm. And so what we kind of have the advantage of with modern Dojo is to do the same things, we believe that Dojo is smaller, faster, and more efficient and it's more predictable because we have embraced TypeScript in a way that most others have not. And so like Angular uses TypeScript, but we feel like TypeScript is still kind of hard to use with Angular on a daily basis. Whereas Dojo, is, we've really focused on like the ergonomics of how do you make TypeScript and Dojo be something that benefits you through development and make your life easier. Um, so like, do you want a modern, fast framework that does things right by default, that gives you a lot of flexibility, but doesn't make you have to figure everything out, you know, from scratch. Like that's the kind of idea behind Dojo. It's like the power of like having someone who knows every framework and everything about them, but not having to think about that all every day is, is kind of where we're finding people are interested in it. Well, do you know what would be nice? If we had like a framework that did all the front end stuff really good and also had a back-end system so that you could build apps but didn't have to worry about configuring the apps. And it would, it would have a back-end system there where you wouldn't have to think about how it's done. You could have a, a SQL version and a NoSQL version, and uh, you, yeah. could, you could do everything in one project. Because like, if you look at, look at, look at the we example... Use, yeah, we use something called NestJS for a lot of our projects on the server side, and it's pretty nice for managing the sort of back-end considerations that you don't normally see in a front-end application. What's it called? Now, it's called Nest, N-E-S-T dot J-S. And it's, um, it's kind of like a modern spring for TypeScript applications. So and I say that in the nicest way. Like spring, when it first came out, totally transformed you know, the Java ecosystem. And today we think of spring as kind of this like slow Java framework. But um, Nest.js is really... Um, pretty nice to work with as well. 
26,000 stars Nest has. A progressive yeah. node framework for building efficient scale enterprise grid server locations. Okay. And did, did they come up have like hosting plans and like hosting databases for you? Um, I mean, that's not, they're not trying to sell that, but you could, I mean, we deploy it using your, like AWS pretty effortlessly. So it's pretty straightforward to get that all set up. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. The system of choice or backend systems is just ridiculous. Look at, look at the, uh, it is. <laughs> there's like, look at the uh, real world application. There's like 40 different backends and who knows how many different forks and stuff. So, Absolutely. Back in the day, it was yeah, PHP I mean, and MySQL and SQL Server <laughs> and C Sharp and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting how much, um, like, the thing is, you want, you want some fragmentation because that's where, like, innovation happens. But then you want to, like, sort of pick something that you know is going to last long enough that you won't have to rewrite every year or two. Um, yeah. And I think a lot, of, a lot of the modern sort of developer you know, DevOps, if you want to call it that, but just developer methodology is to create things that can be easily and predictably updated in small chunks rather than like, oh, we've got a new release every year and now we've got to rewrite everything, you know, which is the sort of old model. Now it's like we release a small update that's easy to incrementally stay current with it and change it and test it automatically and make sure, you know, we didn't break anything. And I mean, you know, 15 years ago, the thought of a web browser automatically updating itself was like, oh my God, no, I don't trust you. You're going to break me. And now it's like, yeah, sure. Chrome updated um, in the background. So what? No big deal, right? Things <laughs> just work. And Kate, you know, once, once every 10 versions or so of Chrome, I'll run into something where, oh, that actually broke something. I better fix it. But it's pretty rare now that, you know, a release of Chrome or a release of Firefox drastically breaks something I'm doing. But back in the day, there was zero trust for browser vendors to not break you across releases. And so no one would automatically update. That was a completely foreign concept. And similarly, like frameworks would come out once a year. And then it would take an enterprise like six to eight months to upgrade because they had done so much stuff that wasn't easy to upgrade. And now most frameworks provide migration scripts that can automatically update you to the newest version, right? And help you progress. So like that the Daimler example was they would take six to nine months to upgrade versions of Dojo one. And with modern Dojo, they're like, Oh yeah, it took about an hour and we're all set and everything works. And it's like, well, that's great. That's how it should be. Right. So it's, it's pretty cool to be in that, you know, that state of being able to rapidly iterate in predictable ways. And it, you know, kind of, it's interesting. Like there's a lot of parallels between that and the conference business, right? Like I'm trying to create a conference business that can rapidly iterate and adapt and like be flexible. And, you know, if everyone has to go online, we can move online. And if we want to do things in person in different cities, we can do that without like this sort of heavy lock in. Well, I guess it'll take us a year to change this all around and, and do things differently. And um, so it's probably, I guess what I'm saying is I, I appreciate that in everything I do, not just software development. So what made you use React, sorry, JSX for your templating versus what a lot of other frameworks are doing is just using like views or a view, like a basically extension of HTML? So we do have an experimental uh, templating syntax that is effectively JSX, but in HTML. Um, and the, so we, we started out with this thing called HyperScript, which was purely functional. And what we found is it's just, it's hard to write things that way because you have a lot of JavaScript parameters. Um, so like JSX is kind of a nice, happy medium. And it was like eight lines of code for us to switch between the two. So it wasn't a lot of, you know, the, the overhead was pretty small. Um, but we do have this, you know, HTML-like syntax that you could use as well. We haven't really publicized that yet because we're still working on it. Um, but I, it's interesting because I feel like historically, so Dojo One had this concept of either you could instantiate all of your components through code or through markup. And that work to maintain that, like 2007, made it such that the markup version was always slower. And that's no longer the case. Um, but I find that trying to do precise type definitions of 
pure HTML based components that you're extending becomes really difficult to manage in terms of like what TypeScript is designed to do. Whereas JSX is something that typed, the TypeScript team has done a lot of work to make it type safe. And so for us, type safety is a really big thing from an accuracy perspective. And so if we can't safely type something, then we feel like we are doing our users a disservice because they're going to find errors unexpectedly, probably in production rather than during development. So for us, it's all about like what can we effectively do with TypeScript and do it well. Um, you could also use web component syntax with Modern Dojo if you wanted to, and you can import and export all your components as web components if you like. Um, so that's sort of another approach a lot of people take as well. So I'm looking at the stores uh, page on the learn, dojo.io forward slash learn forward slash stores. So how, how mm -hmm. are you doing things like actions, like Redux does, or how, how does, uh, is it like a one-way data flow, or how in general does the stores? It is a one-way data, data flow model. Um, the difference is sort of like we've segregated things in a clear way. So like for me, the question always with Redux early on was like, where do I put my business logic? And you talk to five people and you get five different answers. And Dojo, I think, pretty clearly segregates like what you do where. But in terms of like the philosophical data model, it is a property and DOM diffing system. And I say that in that um, so Dojo has this concept of both property diffing and DOM diffing, which allows us to be more efficient. And there are th ways, of course, to do that in React, um, like memoizing things and whatnot, whereas Dojo just kind of does that automatically for you and figures out like, do I really need to update this whole thing or do I just need to update this sub thing or do I need to update this small segment or whatnot? Um, so it, it's pretty cool, pretty efficient. So it says the store holds a global atomic state for the entire application. That sounds a bit like Redux's data store. Yes. That's about where, that's where we started and that's what's similar to Redux, but pretty much everything else is a bit different as we evolved it and, and worked on it. So you have a store and you have something called a registry, which is a register store injector, and you pass it in the store as a parameter. Mm -hmm. So is store like a, a, a fancy map or just a deep JavaScript object? I mean, yeah, it's basically a, an object. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. I, th I mean, it, it's one of those things where you're like, well, there's actually not that much there. But um, the, the kind of key concept is that a lot of times what you'll do is you'll write... Um, some middleware and what the middleware does is it's sort of and you could think of that what you just described as middleware as well just you know software that exists between two things to connect them in a reactive way oh, this and is... so go ahead uh, yeah keep, keep going no no i, I want to hear your question oh, this, this is interesting <laughs> because one of the things that I, and, and sort of annoys me with react is like there's different ways to manipulate the store and also provide like asynchronous functionalities and like there's like thunks and there's like sagas and but you've got these things this section called updating stores there are three concepts in working with dojo stores so it's nice that you've actually thought about this for for the users versus the user community you have to figure out so like operation instructions to manipulate the state held by the store commands simple functions that perform business logic and operations and processes execute a group of commands and represent application behavior that's nice Exactly. Yes, that's that's kind of the gist right there. And that's what I, I alluded to that a bit earlier, but that's exactly what the goal is there, is to make it very clear how you do it and why you do it and what the impact of that is and how it works together. And um, so it really is a lot more straightforward, in my opinion, than working with Redux. So I'm looking at this code here to create to create a code factory. You've got this in cons, create command equals create command factory. It's generic passing the state, which is, I guess, the state of this, the data the application is held. And then you pass in this, you've got this thing called my command equals create command. And then there's a, an, a, this, a, a deconstructed object, which is kind of complicated. It's got a at get path payload state, return an empty array. So... Yes. <laughs> I'm loving watching you work through this in real time and like understanding it. It's great to like see the expression on your face because it's rare that you get to watch someone 
you know, try to make sense of what you've created in real time. So that's pretty yeah. cool. Um, yeah, like, and there's, so Dojo 7 does simplify a few things a little bit more, and Dojo 6 simplified a lot of things over Dojo 5. So it's actually interesting. Probably each successive release has gotten a bit smaller and a bit more streamlined and a bit less boilerplate-y. Um, but fundamentally, the idea is, like, you, you have an application and you effectively, like, mount it or, you know, bootstrap it with, you know, potentially a store and some modules and, you know, some other dependencies that you have. And then, you know, you, you connect it to like your routing as part of that, which then is used to figure out like, okay, what, what's the structure of this application and what's loaded and what do I need to load later? And then the build system kind of comes in and uses Webpack to optimize that into nice bundles based on the structure of your application and your components are all, you know, using, um, basically JSX, you know, or TSX and, you know, getting their data from your data source and, you don't have to use the store. The store is optional. So, you know, it works fine without that. And then we do something similar for like styling of components. So the idea is you've got a theme system that can read, you know, CSS variables. It uses post CSS, which is kind of like Babel for CSS. And, um, you know, you can kind of um, effectively take a, a set of class names that are defined in a module, a CSS module, and you import that as a TypeScript module. But what TypeScript's actually just importing is a list of strings. And then what it's doing is it's enforcing your use of class names, restricting it to the ones you've defined in your CSS. So you can never like typo your class name. It just reads the class names that are valid for that component that you've imported effectively from a, a, a TypeScript definition describing a CSS class or you know CSS module. So the idea is like in your autocomplete in your editor, you can only add the CSS class names that are allowed for that component. And so there's a lot of like interesting ergonomic fit and finish details throughout the framework like that that just save you like five seconds here and 10 seconds there and help you not make this mistake. But there's, there's still things that are rough. Like I find once in a while, like I forget a set of braces and type in JSX, you know, and suddenly like, my it just doesn't nothing works there's no error message and just kind of silently fails and then you like sort of dig into it and you're like okay obviously this syntax is wrong so there's you know nothing's perfect but in terms of like general ergonomics and efficiency i feel like we've really got something special done so i noticed you've got something called const angle brackets uh or curly brackets path equals store why, why are you using this thing called path versus like optional chaining well that path is just like a, a set of like an object a named object that you're passing into your child component right do you yeah. understand that yeah i've got i see something called forward slash users forward slash current forward slash name dot path that's that's not like a directory structure is it not necessarily. And it could be, but it's probably not. It might just be a variable representation of your yeah. structure. Yeah. So what I'm looking for in frameworks now is like, I don't want to think for what I'm doing. I just want to mm-hmm. do it. I know. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like I was so busy with like managing company and managing conferences that I didn't do any like meaningful development for like a year. Like it just was like, you know, for me, when I'm engineering, I need to be like working on that a lot. Otherwise, I feel like I'm just frustrated all the time. So I had about a year away from doing meaningful engineering. And I picked up Dojo recently to work on this half stack site. And the most challenging part for me, honestly, was CSS. Like the TypeScript and JavaScript side of it just pretty much worked. And it was really straightforward. And there were enough examples I could follow and it was a lot of it's just configuration based and, and very straightforward. But what was killing me was like, okay, am I using Flexbox or grid or positioning here? And like, what do I need to do to make this responsive? And like, just those were the challenges I was running into, which surprised me because to me in the past, CSS was always kind of the easy part of the thing. And JavaScript is where all of my mistakes were. And now all of my mistakes are a CSS, which is pretty funny. So like to me, that says, well, the JavaScript part of this framework is really good. And I still have, and I'm 
just like I'm so far behind on my CSS knowledge that I've got to like, but then I basically spent a day and I relearned like all the new stuff I could find on CSS and like layout models and everything. And then suddenly it started to all come together and now I've been super productive, but I was actually getting hung up on the thing that I always thought was the easiest part of the platform, which was funny. So I'm looking at the uh, ad operation and it uh, mm-hmm. is manipulating the state with a DSL, like add at path users list. So why are you getting the users to do it that way versus like with a reducer and re- react redux where they actually just manipulate the state object directly? Um, I'll be honest, I don't remember how we ended up specifically down this path other than we knew that we felt like there was a lot of boilerplate in the way that Redux did it, and we felt like this was very natural. But I know we were inspired by, um, I think we're just inspired by a lot of the research that's out there around how to do this outside the JavaScript ecosystem, I think. And it's just a, like, I, in the past, have done a lot of, like, if you remember Google Wave back in the day, it was kind of like the first mainstream real-time platform, right? And they did a lot of research around operational transforms and stuff. So there's a lot of research out there around that kind of stuff. And I think we just tried to follow that pattern or that paradigm more than anything else. Um, well, it's so really, like, really well. In one line, you're doing something that would take normal JavaScript about six lines. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we, we tried to, like, we didn't invent that so much as we tried to bring something there that would be a lot more efficient and effective than we really don't like repetitive boilerplate. Um, even if it means the syntax takes a few minutes to learn, um, you know, if it saves us boilerplate time later, we, we prefer it. One of the things I don't like about um, React, reactive RxJS is that it's a lot, a lot of new concepts that are not like immediately obvious to developers what it is like, for example, of function. Like people, yeah. what does that mean, right? Or um, there's a lot of things like, well, like RxJS, flat, yeah. yeah, I mean, RxJS is really nice, but, you know, it comes from Rx, the project that started, I think, at Microsoft as doing this for other languages. And yeah. then eventually there was a JavaScript version, right? And it's a large API footprint, and it gives you, like, a ton of different things. But the reality is most days you need, like, four or five of them. But you're, you know, you're sort of digging in a minefield of like 500 API calls for what you actually need on a regular basis and figuring that out. So we've really tried to say, you know, let's just be reactive instead of forcing you to figure out how to be reactive in your code base. That's all with like, if you're good at reactive JS, then, and if you have a bunch of other developers that are good at it, then it's fine, use it all over the code base. But if you're not used to it before, you come at the code and you're like, Quarren's <laughs> like, hey, what does this on? do? You know, yeah. versus what I'm looking yeah. at here with this uh, your operations, and, and you can all I can I already tell what it's doing just by looking at the code, like add at path, and uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah. nice, man. It's nice. I know we've Thank talked you. about Dojo before. I've not actually, not actually looked at the code before. Right, yeah. I think I've told you about it, but like actually looking at what it's doing, it's like, oh wow, yeah. that's cool. <laughs> It's, it just seems uh, seems good, but I mean only three hundred and twenty stars. That there should be there should be at least a thousand. This is quality. <laughs> we are much better at engineering than marketing, and that's always been the case. But we do have a beautiful logo, so we have that at least. Yeah. <laughs> Our logo actually takes all the colors from all the different browsers and combines them into a dragon. And the idea was that like this framework helps you do everything you could want to do for a web application. And so that was kind of the concept behind it at that time. Yeah. So like there's some Safari and some WebKit and some, you know, Chrome and some Firefox and some at the time IE or edge colors in the logo. Um, and they the sort of spectrum of the full range of what you can do in a browser was the idea behind the logo. So. Yeah. For people with, with like large egos, the word, Command sounds better than action, you know. Like, yeah. I command the app to do this, you know. Like, command, I command you to do this process. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, uh, there are, you know, that's not unique to Dojo or JavaScript. I mean, that terminology comes from this space of, you know, how you manage state across the system. Yeah. 
I don't think I've ever looked at a framework where it looked so so um, obvious to figure out how to do things. Thank you. I mean, that's that's the goal. <laughs> and we really. And you go. Yeah, we really strongly believe that we don't want to impose pain on our users, and I mean to the point where we re- we rewrote Modern Dojo so many times before we felt like this is something we would use, so you should use it. You know, we could have shipped something years ago, um, but we didn't feel like it was good. It wasn't ready. It wasn't right, and we wanted something that was that much more natural to use to us for us to feel like that was something we would want to impose on anyone else. And, uh, you know, so that's the kind of standards we have around what we do. And, you know, back in the day, there was this like Dojo already did that meme. Cause like Dojo was one of the first frameworks to do promises and modules and having a build system and having components and like all these things were pretty unique in Dojo like 15 years ago. But they weren't great because that was what you could do back then. You know, you could do them, but they weren't great. Um, so now what we've been able to do is be like, well, you know, there are a lot of great standards we can leverage and work with rather than having to reinvent the whole ecosystem. So instead, what we can kind of do is try to really streamline the app development process while remaining really closely aligned with all the nice standards and best practices we can find. And then try to just continually reduce the boilerplate, reduce the bundle size, you know, streamline the workflow, and just try to make it really natural and easy to work with. So basically, to use a store, you, you wrap everything with a store provider? Yes. Okay. And, and what is this uh, middleware used for this uh, store, store middleware? So the idea is there are times when you want to combine functionality together. So like there's middleware for caching, there's middleware for theming, there's middleware for invalidating things. Um, you know, meaning like to deliberately say this thing needs to get re-rendered whenever this happens. And when you create your component, you can, or other things, you can kind of mix this middleware together and it does it in a type safe way. So what you're effectively doing is functionally, composing things together right Mm -hmm. so middleware is basically compositional behavior in terms of combining things together to work together so is there like a real world version of this dojo yes there is Uh, is you can either find it in the you can either find yeah you can find it there or you can find it in the dojo examples dojo 2 i see yeah dojo 2 well i've started dojo tonight and i'm going to start the 22 stars on Dojo Real World. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> who's A, A Gubbler? That's Anthony Gubbler, or Ant, as we call him. He's one of the two primary architects behind Modern Dojo. Him and Matt Gad, are, um, they work at Saipan on Dojo, and um, they're both based in London, well, the London area, actually. And oh, nice. I've known them I'll for 10-plus years. Um they go to Half Stack London most years, so if you're ever in London in November, you might meet them there. I'm, I mean, I'm renting a place in London, but I haven't lived there in a few weeks or a few, probably yeah, a few months. Well, <laughs> place, right? Yeah, well, hopefully, real person in you know in real life events are a thing again, and you'll meet them in November if you're in London for Half Stack. But um, they're just they're great engineers, and they they are. Um, so you've probably heard of this, but there are a lot of famous like duos of engineers where they they work together. You know, they pair most of the time and they collaborate, um, you know, and there's like this famous pair at Google that built a lot of Google infrastructure early in the days. And they are like, you know, two people who always pair programmed. Um, Matt and Nat have pair programmed together for, I think, probably close to 10 years now and just constantly bouncing ideas off each other and working together. And um, they're really great to work with. Cool. All right, buddy. So uh, what's your plans for the weekend? Oh, well, oddly enough, the weekend feels a lot like the weekdays lately. <laughs> 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 like there's nowhere to go. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I guess I don't work as much on the weekends, but I've been trying to sort of, it's interesting, like trying to work a little bit less during the week and then working a little bit more on the weekend. And then every day just kind of feels steady. Um, but I don't know. I mean, there's I half stack on lines in four weeks, so I've got to make some progress on that, I guess. But um, yeah, I don't know. What about you? 
uh, I'm actually starting to write music, so I'm right. tempted to live stream my creation process. Uh, I'm sort of inspired by Tron Legacy and Metal Gear Solid. Uh-huh, that's so cool. I put the uh, music in, um, in my other podcast, Cafe, like Infosys Cafe, but I'll... Um, I wonder if I should stick them in. It's quite a sort of melancholy tune, so I don't think it's suitable for this podcast. But it's that, still fine. I find I find music is quite it's quite interesting. I had a, I talked to uh, Howard Dawson for an Influencers Cafe, and he used to program uh, some of the me- Mega Drive music, for example, mm-hmm. Sonic and Knuckles. He worked on that. He worked on um, a lot of other Comic Zone. He worked on Vigilante Ape, and he worked he worked on the He's more of a movie guy you now. He makes he works on movies, movie audio. But he sort of inspired yeah. me by one of what things that he's, his mentor said was, which was Herbie Hancock. And he says, just, just let the music go where the music wants to go. So I'm just sort of letting this this piece of music evolve. It's interesting you say that. So one of the speakers for Half Stack Tel Aviv, who's also going to speak at Half Stack Online, her name is um, Mina Marie. And she is doing a talk as well as a performance based on so she has basically uh, a machine learning algorithm she's built that becomes her partner in making music and they make music together live. And every time it's different because it just, she puts some different parameters in and then the AI kind of does its own thing. And, but like you said, it's like letting the music go where it needs to go or taking it where it goes is her style. So like she sometimes gets completely surprised on stage with where the music ends up going because it just has for her unpredictable results sometimes, which is pretty cool. And um, so she's going to talk about how she does that and then show it as well, which is pretty neat. So there's, there's a lot of cool people. Like one idea I had at some point for half stack, like half stack always has a couple of talks that do something with music. But actually having an entire half stack conference just about like audio and music and games and like just making noise with the web in interesting ways. Um, because I think it's such an interesting creative way to do things. And you know, we have decent APIs on the web for like we have web audio and we have some other things. But like so last year at Half Stack in New York, um, one person took maps and he used demographic data and took demographic data to make music and sound effects so you could like see a map and figure out um, where it was and another person there's this um sea organ in um croatia uh what's it called uh, it's a sea organ basically what it is is they've got like when the waves come up water passes over the system and it plays it kind of sounds like whales and dolphins making sounds right but he took the same idea with weather data to create what he calls the conditional orchestra. And he basically, you can listen to a track based on weather data for an area and determine like, is it warm? Is it raining? Is it humid? Nice. You know, is there a tornado? And like he, he did that talk at half stack London last year. So I really have a, a pretty awesome passion for people that are creative like that using web technologies to like, do interesting stuff with music and sound and and yet like combining programming with that in cool ways and so yeah. I might end up doing a whole conference just around that topic. You need to have a good imagination for music because if you want to save time because you basically have to think in your head what to put down next and then you just take the instruments and stick them down versus if you just have to keep testing everything all the time then you can yeah. sort of perform <laughs> experiments in your mind. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of similarities and parallels between artists and engineers. And it's, I say that because a lot of people think that like, engineering is very much just logic and no creativity. And a lot of people think artistry is just creativity and no logic, right? But there's a lot of similarities between the process that goes on. And a lot of a lot of times you need to be creative as an engineer, you need to be engineering to be creative. And um, one of the things I hope people take away from half stack over the years is how much we have in common and how those, you know, how you need to oscillate between those two perceived different states to actually be really good at what you do. Yeah. 
Okay, buddy. Anything else you want to want to share with the audience? I mean, I guess just join us for Half Stack Online on the twenty second of May. That the tickets are nineteen dollars, and we're doing this as part COVID nineteen charity fundraiser, which is why we picked nineteen dollars because it's COVID nineteen. So, you know, if they made it COVID one ninety, I guess we could have charged one hundred ninety dollars. But, cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, the idea is we want to like be inspired together, create something fun, raise some money for charity, listen to some great talks, have some good laughs and do it as a community. Nice. Can you give me a link and I'll stick it in the show notes for that? Yeah, it's halfstepconf.com slash online. Okay, nice one. Cool, man. Well, Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Dylan, yeah. for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you.